Good evening, I'm Ted Koppel. Surely everyone knows by now that Buckwheat is dead. But for those of you who have not seen the videotape of Buckwheat being shot, let's take a look. Web, Heavy Longmire, Gustav Matteblanc. Is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second? This is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Come on then, Plato, enlighten me. Welcome back to Can You Hear Me, the podcast that's normally three guys talking about stuff. But once again, it's just your old pal Gustav Monteblanc manning that wall, keeping watch. We were unable to get together for a recording session like I had hoped this week. It's just a tough time of year for that sort of thing. So I decided to go ahead and do another City of Gustav. We'll take a break from all the doomsday stuff, although some of y'all did express that you'd like to learn a little bit more about that, and maybe we can revisit that further down the line. But for today, I want to go back to our roots here at City of Gustav and touch on uh, some spy things. A few recent developments got me thinking about a uh, subject that always has intrigued me, so I wanted to dive into that. Now, as you know, espionage and counter-espionage have always been fascinating to me. In the past, I've talked about Russian dirty tricks and assassinations and how the U.S. was spying on North Korea, and that led to the USS Pueblo incident. But today, I'd like to briefly talk about one of the more technical, but equally fascinating, at least to me, methods in the espionage world. And that would be what they call one-time pads. But first, let's do a little background. You know, as we've talked in previous episodes of this podcast, Ty and Heavy and I are Born into the last generation of the Cold War. We were in high school when the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union collapsed. And our childhood was, you know, filled full of Russian specter and nuclear annihilation worries. And the idea of spies was just ingrained into our minds at a very early age, thanks to movies and TV, you know, Films like the James Bond movies and old spy shows from the 60s like Man from Uncle or Mission Impossible. These were everywhere for us. They were on reruns. We watched them on uh, videos, VHS tapes. It was just all over the place for us. And those portrayals usually were pretty glamorous and exciting. 
but with just enough technical geekiness to satisfy nerds like me. Now, you know, Heavy may roll his eyes at this sort of thing, but this is my bread and butter. This is what I grew up thinking about, and the scenes where 007 would meet with Q to get his new spy gadgets were always a high point for any of the James Bond movies. I was very interested to see Jim Phelps and his team on Mission Impossible to see how they would use technology to thwart some evil, fictitious country that they were up against. And while there are all kinds of nitty gadgets in the history of the Cold War and the earlier spy rings before that, sometimes the tools are not so glamorous. And unless you're a cryptography fan, one-time pads may certainly fall into that not-so-glamorous category but they were a key method of transmitting secure data from one point to another in the last hundred years. So let's get into what they are. You may have never heard of them. I know I hadn't up to a certain point. One-time pads get their name from both their original method of construction as a notepad and their unique characteristics, i.e. one time. The basic format is that you're going to take your plain text, your unencoded message, and you're going to add random characters to it. Now, you could use true alpha characters like A, B, C, D, and so on, but to make it more complex, cryptographers usually convert it all into numbers. So now that you have your cipher text and a super secret code that you've created, what do you do with it then? And that's where the one-time pad comes into play. By printing two exact copies of the cipher, the cipher text can be decoded if you have the other copy. And because, in theory, the one-time pad is unique, it can only be decoded if you have that matching copy to the original. Now, with this level of encryption, it doesn't matter how the message is sent. You could send it via radio, telegraph, letter, a classified ad in the newspaper, or modern times, electronically via email or social media. As long as the physical security and the true randomness of the two versions of the one-time pads are maintained, you have an unbreakable code. The idea behind the cryptography of the one-time pad began to develop in the late 1880s and was further worked on up through World War I. The cryptographers of the era realized the effort involved in making the code and the fact that you still had to deliver it physically to the other person you wanted to communicate with made a single-use item very impractical. Their solution was to print several pages in the form of a notepad. Thus, we get the common name one-time pad. By having multiple pages, random, of course, on each page, the participants could keep the secure line of communication open for a length of time. Now, some methods involved identifying the next page to be used at the end of the previous transmission, or simply ripping off the just-used page and planning on using the next page of the pad. It's very simple, and it's practical as it worked. Of course, you had to dispose of the previous pages. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Earlier, when I talked about the scenes in James Bond with the Gadget Whiz Q, I forgot to mention that there were whole teams of real-life Qs making real-life gadgets for their own country's spies. They put their minds to work on making one-time pads easily smuggled and easily destroyable. The paper the one-time pads were printed with were sometimes easily dissolvable in your mouth or water in case you needed to swallow it or flush it down a commode. And there are instances of it being printed on flash paper that would burn rapidly and easily destroy the evidence. It was key that the one-time pad never fall into the enemy's hands. Now, I mentioned the need to keep the one-time pad secret. And that's where we start to get into the cool parts of espionage technology. 
Initial versions were typed on regular typewriters, so the size was rather large and obvious and limited to what the typewriter could do. To reduce the chances of detection, both sides began to work on printing smaller and smaller versions. Some one-time pads got miniaturized to the point that you needed a good, strong magnifying glass to even read them. The real-life cues of the world, not the ones in Fleming cooked up, also developed clever ways to smuggle one-time pads to agents deep, deep with the behind enemy lines. With the smaller size due to the miniaturization of the print, the one-time pads are known to have been smuggled in shaving and grooming kits, hollowed-out batteries, hollow compartments in the heels of shoes, and I've even seen hollowed-out walnuts that had been opened, cleaned, and put back together with one-time pads in them. Supposedly, that was a East German technique. Now, I've been focusing on true spying, you know, field agents out there working for one with one-time pads, but it wasn't always just relegated to field work. Initially, they were used for diplomatic communications as well between the embassies of the world. But they really came into their own in the Cold War and in the hands of field agents. An operative could be deep in a foreign country, and their handlers could communicate with them without having to have direct contact. I talked a bit about being able to use it in print, but I feel the most fascinating aspect to me is the use of radio, specifically shortwave radio during the Cold War. Two-way radio traffic between an operative and his handler was certainly used. And obviously the United States and the Soviet Union produced the bulk of the spy radio sets that were out there. But both East and West Germans, the British, the Hungarians, the Dutch, the Czech, and the Yugoslavians all produced various versions over the years. I'd also wager that there were Chinese-produced radio sets, but I'm just not familiar with them, nor have I ever seen any examples of them. But they're probably out there. These spy radio sets range from simple early models shortly after World War II to complex models as the technology improved, including things like tape burst transmitters that would allow a high-speed burst of Morse code to be transmitted to limit the chances of detection by radio equipment. Now, depending where your radio set might be used, the markings might be localized so that they wouldn't create added suspicion if the set was ever discovered. So even though a spy radio set might have been manufactured in East Germany to be used by operatives in the Western Europe, the controls and dials would be printed in English, so if the agent was ever compromised, it wouldn't be a smoking gun. So obviously there's two-way communication going on between field agents and the powers that be. But a far more interesting piece of Cold War spy lore is what people refer to as number stations. Now, these are mysterious stations on the shortwave band of the radio spectrum where someone is broadcasting messages in the form of cryptic numbers and tones. There's often a distinct start to the message, such as a, a, a song, a bit of music, or specific tones, that's then followed by a string of numbers, usually in a synthesized voice, although sometimes it was spoken by an individual. Some of the stations broadcast at set times, but others just broadcasted at random times throughout the day or night. Now, there were a multitude of stations during the Cold War, and if you want to go down a YouTube rabbit hole, there are many recordings available to listen to. One of the most famous was a station that was dubbed the Lincolnshire Poacher, 
and was believed to have been operated by MI6, the British intelligence agency, from the 70s all the way up to 2008, well past the Cold War end. Its messages were started with a portion of an old English folk song called The Lincolnshire Poacher, hence the nickname, and then followed by a series of numbers in a synthesized female voice, usually with the, uh, the tone lifting towards the end. Let's take a listen to the sample of it. Radio enthusiasts narrowed down the location that the Lincolnshire Poacher was being broadcast from to a British airbase on the island of Cyprus. From there, the signal would have been easily picked up in the Middle East. But that is just one of the many number stations which could be found during the Cold War. Interestingly enough, just because the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact dissolved in the 90s, not all the number stations went dark. Some continue on to this day. Now, it's presumed that the numeric messages were intended for operatives to use one-time pads with to decipher. Stations like the Lincolnshire Poacher had a set broadcast schedule, while others might be broadcasted as needed. And due to the powerful encryption capability of the one-time pad, there's no way to know if some of these broadcasts were simply decoy messages to create static for the other sides. With the one-time pad and the number stations, field operatives could be instructed of further instructions or meeting places or drop locations with their handlers. It really was the best scheme at the time. In that era, the one-time pads provided a fairly secure mean of communication. True randomness had to be maintained. That was the difficulty in World War II era through the computerization of the superpowers. If they used manually generated or hand-typed, there was always the chance that a pattern could develop. And if an organization got lazy or even reused the same key again, then their opposite counterparts on the other side had the potential to decipher their messages. Some modern-day cryptographers disagree that the one-time pad, when properly used, was indecipherable unless you have the key. The advances in computational power may prove that correct. And in today's world of encryption, there may really no longer be a need for one-time pads. But that doesn't mean that they're not in use today. They may have moved on to a digital media on thumb drives or CD-ROMs, but they still exist in the 21st century. And number stations are still out there, transmitting to someone, waiting for the next message. Again, I'd like to uh, encourage you to check those out on YouTube. I've included a couple of those uh, number station transmissions in our open and our outro. But uh, it's one of those fascinating aspects of the Cold War that lingers on today a little bit. And there's still more questions than there are answers. Through freedom of information and declassification, some of these stations have been identified who was running them. But there are still some that are mysteries and may always be. Well... I want to thank you again for joining us. You know, uh, if we don't get to talk to you before Christmas, have a Merry Christmas and a Happy Hanukkah and a festive Kwanzaa and a Festivus for the feats of strength, whatever you celebrate, 
As always, we'd love to hear from you, so send us an email at canyouhearmepod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at, at Real Gustav or the show Can You Hear Me Pod on Twitter. And, you know, if there's something you'd ever like to hear us talk about, whether it's the whole group or just me on something real nerdy, let me know and we'll kick the idea around. We'd love to hear from you. And I guess we'll talk to you later. Adios. Bye. Championship Wrestling. I'm Bill Mercer with Jay Salley. Good night from Dallas, Texas.